This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Charlie Peters. Uh, he is a writer um, and broadcaster from London, and he is also a documentary filmmaker for GB News. Welcome. Welcome, Charlie. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've had the uh, strange pleasure of <clears throat> recently seeing your, your latest, uh, latest documentary uh, called uh, Grooming Gang's uh, Britain's Shame. Um, which I guess, as the title implies, is not a uh, very pleasant viewing, but it's very informative. And it uh, relates to something that I was vaguely aware of, even when I was living in the UK, which was about now, maybe like four or five, six years ago. Um, it was kind of in the ether and it was kind of associated with some, you know, nefarious characters such as Tommy Robinson, who was pretty much the only person who was kind of out and loud and talking about this stuff. Um, so I wonder, I mean, you've now taken it upon yourself to become in a way the face of this thing or not necessarily the face, but to be, to be kind of the catalyst, to bring the story out in full and, you know, to, to present the scale of, of everything that's happened. So I wonder how, um, how this has been for you. I mean, to, to become associated with this thing, which, like I said, you know, Tommy Robinson had to pay quite a high price, uh, to be, uh, engaged with. I'd say for me, uh, the the price that I'm paying for engaging with this topic pales in comparison to the price paid by the survivors and those involved with the story that I'm speaking to. So um, to be honest with you, I, I don't think of it very much. I think um, there are elements of physical and moral courage attached to this work, as there is with all good investigative journalism. But um, no, I, I have to say, I, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to answer this kind of question. And it has been asked before, uh, because... Um, obviously, the people I'm I'm meeting and speaking to and working with on these stories have endured so much that to compare the the disapproving glances from journalists who don't like the story or the the mutterings of people in my friendship groups who uh, perhaps don't agree with my analysis or the policy proposals I make. I mean that that as a cost really is negligible in comparison to what I have witnessed and what I have recorded. So um, in, in all honesty, I'm very happy to take on the mantle of this story because I think, and I suppose the motivating factor for me for making this film was that when the lid blew off this scandal over a decade ago in the Times newspaper, um, I felt that we never really had the honest and accurate conversation from all parts of society. So the media pretty much bottled it extensively across the papers and the broadcasters. I think that government was diabolical in its dealing with this issue. The reports it published into the national picture have been lame in the extreme. They have not had the sufficient analysis required. And that has allowed those who would rather ignore this topic and pretend it doesn't exist uh, for it to disappear. Um, and they are happy to do that because I think this story exposes so many of Britain's social ills and struggles across the board 
that uh, to ignore it allows people who are either active architects of those failures or are complicit through their inaction to escape the robust criticism they deserve. Now, for any of your uh, for any of your you know, your viewers and listeners who don't really know, yes, that was my story. next question. Yeah, and yeah, I sorry. Think people I know just. Tangentially know about this, I think, because I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Sure. If they listen to the whole my whole opus, but um, it's you know it's it's a little bit common knowledge, kind of in the more in the more right wing sphere. But if you could just lay out not only what it is and kind of what you found about the the scale of it and and kind of how it's playing out, maybe even today. Sure. So uh, it's called the the so called kind of grooming gang scandal. Grooming gangs refers to group localized child sexual exploitation under what is commonly known as the, often known as the boyfriend model of exploitation, whereby victims are um, treated with um, fake and false compassion by their abusers. They are groomed into believing they're in a relationship often, and then they are systematically abused, tortured, raped, all the rest of it, horrific. Um, but this story and this trend relates to instances or group-localized child sexual exploitation that have additional crises and uh, I would say sociological issues and tags attached to them insofar as the victims are mostly white. They're mostly not even uh, considered working class girls by much of society. They're kind of considered underclass, you know, often from broken homes, often living in care, really just not considered important by many people. And the perpetrators in this kind of abuse are the overrepresentation is vastly in line with South Asian and particular Pakistani men in Britain. So, as you can imagine, this story has uh, attracted ire from all sides, but it has attracted the rage, condemnation, and interest predominantly from the right, and then I would say a significant amount of awkward silence from the left for reasons I touched on before. And so this story really came to light massively at a national level in 2012 when a reporter at the Times called Andrew Norfolk published a series of stories in and from Rotherham, which is a post-industrial, post-industrial Victorian town in uh, South Yorkshire in the north of England, uh, where he said that you know, street grooming and the abuse of girls was going on. Uh, this is 2012. Um, the local council dismissed his reporting as lies of the Murdoch press, the Times newspaper owned by News UK, owned by Rupert Murdoch, considered obviously like an enemy of the left and all the rest of it. So it was dismissed. And then in 2014, after significant pressure, lots of reporting by this excellent journalist, Mr Norfolk, um, a review was published into the town called the J Report, which found that 1,400 girls had been abused in the town from 1997 2013. But this is a small town, you know, it's very low six figures population. So for 1400 girls to be systematically groomed and abused in that period is uh, seismic. It's been described as the worst child abuse um, scandal in modern Europe this century. And I, I think it's the most shocking story of the Elizabethan era in Britain. Um, but the real scandal lies in the fact that this is a national story. It is not just Rotherham. And so my work has been trying to investigate to what extent it is still going on today and where else it has occurred. Now, pockets of stories have uh, picked up throughout the country since 2014. So we've had um, a huge crisis in Rochdale, which is in Lancashire and Greater Manchester. Um, another in Telford, which is on the border with Wales, so a little bit further south. 
And then there have been, you know, up to 50 different towns and cities where reports, credible reports of these grooming gangs have taken place, where the trend is similar. So majority um, Asian, Pakistani or Muslim men, and then majority white working class girls um, as, as, the, as the victims, as the survivors. And so this is a national story. And all too often, I think people have been keen to paint it as an isolated or specific area related to the nighttime economy. Actually, I think, and the reason why I was so keen to make this film was to impart the analysis that this is a cultural, racial issue. You know, this, is, this comes from a position of this is a hate crime in the extreme. And it is not just about access. It's not just about taxis and kebab shops and people working and having access to, to drunk girls or whatever. This is about a specific motivated crime of hate against defenseless victims. So um, a big part of that story as well, on top of the motivations of the abusers, has been looking at to what extent the authorities sworn to protect those survivors were negligent in the extreme or in some cases actively involved in covering up the crimes of those um, they were sworn to deal with. So in Rotherham, for example, we now know that South Yorkshire Police, the local police force, um, failed in the extreme. Um, there were 91 investigations against 47 officers in an operation by the independent uh, Office for Police Conduct. Um, they found examples of police officers finding girls in the back of taxis being abused by men and just moving on. Um, parents of some girls who were being abused were told that it would, you know, this was part of growing up, it would teach them a lesson. They, uh, in some, in one extraordinary case, we had an example of a taxi driver facilitating the handover, the exchange of a kidnapped and abused girl to um, the police via her abuser. So he facilitated a handover deal in which the abuser would get off without being punished and the girl would be returned to her family. And, you know, it's just extraordinary levels of conspiracy and toxic cover-up culture. And it was rife. And that was just Rotherham. But similar experiences occurred in, in Rochdale in particular, where you know, the local police were found to be vastly incompetent. Same was true in Telford, another one of the towns I feature in the film. Um, and we can be almost certain that the failures and the modes of feeling and thought that afflicted these authorities has been replicated in that 50 different other towns that I mentioned. And of course, the motivating factor behind all of that failure, the real fear that drove them away from action, the, the, shameful, the shameful kind of crisis that prevented them from doing something was the overarching fear that um, prosecuting majority Asian Pakistani gangs would be seen as racist, that it would lead to some sort of punishment for them, or it would reveal a truth that they didn't want to face. And so this abuse was just allowed to continue. And that is the rank truth of it. Yes, I think the, the, the strangest and most um, disturbing part of, of the reaction that I've, uh, I've read about and I saw in your documentary was kind of the, the, the systematic victim blaming that the police engaged in with the, with the young girls. And uh, I mean, these are girls, I mean, they, some are 11, 12 years old. Um, you know, the, it's, it's almost in, 
inconceivable that you could uh, even ascribe any sort of kind of sexual agency to them. Yet um, a lot of this stuff was just uh, considered, I don't know, ladies of the night doing different activities and and essentially kind of prostitution. But just just even inhabiting this lens is just feels um, not even... Um, I don't know. It's 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 inconceivable, and this this is happening in the in the UK police force, who is uh, known for <laughs> excesses of of political correctness in so many other ways. And uh, I, I wonder. I mean, there's obviously a class implication here. Uh, like you said, these girls were essentially forgotten in in many ways, or people weren't as as interested in them as as other classes of uh, of white girls. Um, but there's there's obviously uh, kind of a, a, a misogyny uh, implication here as well. I mean, the idea that um, you know, if if there's, I guess, I don't know, some some consensual element to this. Um, yeah, I mean, how much do you think that is just them trying to find the, the most plausible explanation to not actually start a you know a local race war? Um, or did, did you know did you consider that this is actually what they believed? I think in some cases the you know the the prioritization of community cohesion and and social social cohesion and calmness between multiracial multicultural towns overwhelmingly prioritized the the keenness to protect girls who were being abused in Oldham for example a town that I I visited as part of the investigation there were huge race riots in 2001 you know people were stabbed pubs were raided um it was ethnic violence in the north of England. Remarkable. And so I think that nervousness must have played on the minds of police officers just 50 miles away in different towns thinking, okay, if we if we admit that we have a massive scandal whereby Asian men are targeting white girls in systematic child abuse, torture, rape, in some cases murder, you know, are we risking reigniting those flames? And so the, I think it, it's almost certainly the case that that fear was at the forefront of, of the thinking of senior police officers and social services as they carried out their own investigation into these scenarios. And, and, and they have to have known as well, because as you can imagine, the local social services, some of them were diabolical in their failure to deal with these issues. The, the stories from Rotherham are, you know, social workers losing files. If girls became pregnant and they were removed from care, they were just, they were deemed if you got pregnant, then you're obviously choosing to have sex, then you can't possibly have been coerced or raped. But there were some social workers, some, some heroes, and, and you, you, you meet them in the film, who did report this stuff and did bring this to the attention of senior officials who would have looked the other way. And I think it's almost certainly the case that that fear, that community cohesion preference was at the forefront of it. Now, um, as part of kind of investigations attached to the film, and research I've done and kind of, uh, kind of digging I've done around this broadcast, I investigated a man called Maruf Hussain, who was the community cohesion minister for Rotherham at the height of this scandal. And in a report in 2015, he was accused of covering up this issue by virtue of pushing conversations away from uh, when, 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 Police officers raised concerns. He would diminish them. He accused a fellow Labour Party member of being racist. He made a, a false allegation of racism when they raised this concern. And I think he also kind of stood up for taxi drivers when the police wanted to investigate the 
the overrepresentation of taxi drivers and this kind of child abuse. So he was involved in some way of reducing the focus on this issue at the highest level of the local government. So he had to resign when the report was, was, was published. He resigned in disgrace. But <laughs> eight years later, I found that he was now, he'd snuck back into the public sector and was working in the National Health Service um, as a, a national diversity inclusion and participation manager. So a man who had prioritised community cohesion over a frank and direct, or, and I was alleged to have you know, prioritised this over a direct investigation into the issue, was suddenly running diversity programmes for the health service, which I think, you know, that cuts right into the heart of the toxic, evil, um, kind of, you say, extreme left, wokest perspective that runs to the heart of this crisis, whereby, you know, if crimes are committed by certain races against other certain classes, then they must be ignored. They must be looked away. We must pretend that they don't happen. For that person to then work in diversity, yeah, it, it, I think it cuts the very heart of the, the sickness at the core of that mode of thinking, where you rank races, where you rank abuse, where who's, who is acceptable to be abused, who is not. And yes, yeah. that, the investigation into his hiring is ongoing by the NHS as a result of my reporting. So we, we will find out what they do with him soon, but they were unaware. They had no idea. Yeah, excellent. I mean, this... Uh... There's there's so many ways to reinvent yourself uh, in in, uh, in the public sector, and that, I think this is not the only case of, of people trying to uh, to escape association with this uh, with this kind of hive of of crimes, and mm. uh, then then reappear and and, uh, and reinvented or or kind of cleansed form somewhere else. Uh, there's yeah, an infinity of jobs for people who who have the specialization of uh, of being a very uh, very well implanted into certain communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, um, you know, actually in that in that intervening period between resigning in disgrace from the council and working for the NHS as a diversity manager, he rebranded himself as an anti-Islamophobia activist. It's just it's so kind of blatant and so direct that after leaving a council which um, was so nervous and riddled with anxiety over being seen to be targeting uh, Muslim Pakistani men. Um, that he would then move into that kind of space afterwards as a sort of professional consultant. He worked for a charity called Faith Matters. He did work with Tell Mama UK, the, the kind of the, the charity that leads the conversation on Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry, etc. So I think it's very telling that he used that bridge to move on to his next career. In fact, he even I found an example of him giving a lecture to West Yorkshire Police on diversity. The West Yorkshire Police, obviously a different force to the one that he worked with at South Yorkshire. But here's a man who stands accused in a publicly printed report commissioned by the government of telling a police officer not to investigate sufficiently Pakistani taxi drivers who are abusing girls. Years later, being hired by a different police force to lecture them on diversity. Like it's a sham. Like it's a total sham. It disgraces us. And yet... um, you know, while I'm always delighted to get an exclusive and a scoop, I was like appalled by the fact that I had found this and nobody else had. And this is my first attempt at an investigative documentary. And like, it was just there, sat in the open and nobody else had bothered to look into it, I felt like. And um, yeah, the, the the lack of accountability, I think, really lies at the heart of this crisis. 
that so many people have been involved either actively or have been complicit in this crisis and just have been able to move on with their lives. In some ways, they've been promoted. Britain is a country that loves to promote generals who lose wars. But this is a new level of, of promotion amid failure. I mean, this is, this is grievous disaster in a public office. And, you know, someone who ran children's services at Rotherham went on to work for a charity, got a six-figure payout. You know, instances like that, and, and, and police officers, senior constables, chief, you know, assistant chief constables, just adding more pips and crowns to their collars as they become more senior after overseeing this sort of failure. In fact, another kind of scoop we landed in this investigation was about a, a Labour politician also from the time of Maru Hussain. He had to resign in 2015. He was called Dominic Beck. He was then the deputy leader of the council, I think. And he had to resign. Um, sorry, he wasn't a deputy leader. He was a minister, though. He had to resign in 2015 when this report came out, detailing that the council was in denial about the extent of the problem. And as a minister in the council and in the cabinet, he had responsibility for the institutional culture. Seven years later, he was picked by Labour to become the parliamentary candidate for Rother Valley, the seat that runs over Rotherham. So he was a man who was deemed to have some shared responsibility for the culture of ignorance and denial that was in the council. Seven years later, that same Labour Party is picking him to run as its representative to Westminster, the highest seat of power in Britain. And the reason that has been able to happen is it's, it's core to that lack of accountability I, I was talking about. So many of the Labour activists and politicians and local figures from that time still have red rosettes on their chest, still are campaigning for the Labour Party, still have positions of influence. Um, I, keep, I can keep going if you want, but there was a big, there was a big story I dropped in in February as well about, about this group of people who were around at the time and are still there. So Jane Senior, who's the social worker in my film from Rotherham, my main source in Rotherham, she was at a meeting uh, in 2005 where her, um, her council-funded youth project called Risky Business delivered a lecture, a seminar, to, um, to every single councillor who was in Rotherham Council at the time. So this seminar briefed 31 Labour councillors, I believe, and some other independent and opposition councillors too, but at the time it was a Labour-dominated council, massively. Now less so, but still, you know, still they're in charge. And they were taken through a case study of a girl who'd been systematically abused, groomed, tortured, had been, you know, violence against her mother, violence against her family, they'd been forced to move, all the rest of it. Horrific uprooting of her life, out of school, her life was just a constant barrage of abuse. And yet the councillors did nothing. In fact, the, the minutes of that meeting were just short. Um, nobody did anything about it. And they claimed, some of the councillors at the time claimed that they said and did nothing because the police said it would jeopardise their own inquiries. It would prevent them from going after these men. And, and this case study was one of 
hundreds that was brief. So this was they were showing this was a, this was a crisis, a, a, a widespread crisis in this small town. And they were just able to get away with saying that the reason why they had done nothing was because the police were doing this when news of this seminar came out in 2014. But nobody had bothered to really press them on this. So I, I looked into it. I found no evidence that the police were even at the meeting. And the first police investigation into this abuse in the town started, started in 2008 and didn't secure any convictions until 2010. So this claim that the police shut them up is first you know, very unlikely due to the fact that the police weren't there, as far as I can tell. And secondly, they were silent for three years while the police did nothing. At no point did they chase the police and the council and the police are in a regular conversation and they work together all the time. At no point did they go to the police and say, what's the latest on dealing with this horrific abuse? We were all briefed on for an hour and a bit. You know, what's going on? So five years passed before there were any convictions. Five years. And that was called Operation Central, that police operation. And everyone thought Operation Central would lead to more convictions, another one. But that was it. They did one and that was that. And uh, that allowed the abusers to keep getting away with it. Four of those councillors who were at that meeting in 2005 are still serving on Wotherham's council. One of them chairs the ethics committee on the council, you know? One of them improves, chairs a committee called Improving Places, about making the town safer. You know, all of them failed drastically, I believe, in dealing with this crisis in 2005. And I've tried very hard to you know, raise the alarm on this issue. And the story did very well, but nobody else picked up on it, really. And they're still in power. In fact, yeah. one of the men, one of the men I spoke to, I called Alan Atkin, he was a counsellor. It's a fairly grotesque figure, if I can speak out of turn for a moment. When I asked him, you know, why didn't you do anything in 2005 when you were told this? Why didn't you speak up? Um, he said, I was just getting on with my life. I was just getting on with things. That's what he said. And when yeah. I brought this story, you know, to my editor, and they said, are you sure he actually said that? I had to play them the recording to prove that he did actually say that. Because it's so stunning a statement to just admit, oh, you know, I was just getting on with my life. After being told that dozens, possibly hundreds, in reality, thousands of girls were being abused. And that was that. Yeah, that, that was kind of my, I think the most startling impression I got just by, you know, just, just living in the UK myself. Obviously, I didn't have any tangent uh, with the scandal itself, but there seemed to be a way in which the UK is probably the most kind of a narco-tyrannical place that I've I've visited, especially the police force, because the um, the scale at which law-abiding citizens can be prosecuted for minor infractions mm -hmm. uh, that go against uh, the, the mainstream regime is insane. Like, you know, people jailed for online speech, for sharing memes, for things like that. Um, and on the other hand, obviously you have these extremes, but just, just living, it, it seemed like that the police, their, their most important role was when actual violent crime, systematic violent crime was happening. So I used to live in East London and that was a common occurrence. Yes. They would come and they would maybe make a little report. They would, they would write it down somewhere and it, it would be, I don't know, put into some form of record and then they would leave. And this would be anything from, you know, stabbings around the, you know, I'm, I'm sure some form of, 
investigation would happen, but you'd never hear any sort of result from that. Uh, it seemed like, okay, what what is the core mandate of the police force of the United Kingdom is keeping a lid on on racial and and diversity issues. That was pretty much that. If if you think about what their role is as that, then you see that they're actually a, a pretty uh, decent police force. They're doing that, you know, to a fault. And they know the only people who they are able to actually prosecute in this context are the law-abiding people, mostly British or mostly, you know, from whatever Western Europe coming there. Um, and yeah, it just, it seemed not only insane, but also completely unsustainable. Like, I mean, crime literally drove me out of London. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the only person. Like, I know people, you know, living in nice places like Islington, just, you know, having, you know, being beaten up in the street for the crime of walking home at night and just just absurd things and you know what the what's the result of the police investigation absolutely nothing any time like you know the, the 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 doors on our building we had like a little bike storage downstairs they looked like they it was the bomb like the door to a bomb shelter every night people tried to break in they broke in a few times like you could just at night you could just hear people trying to get into the building almost every night and like there was absolutely no limits to to what what could happen there and absolutely no limit to to how little the police cared so i don't know it's just a i mean how long can this go on so peter hitchens rather wonderfully once described british police as a paramilitary social workers force so they exist to sort of be kind of quasi armed um the owners of violence in the state who deal with um, minor societal crises and are kind of the the gel that keeps the Blairite dream stuck together. Um, now, it's certainly true that the police have suffered enormously since 2010 with austerity. In London, for example, the number of um, actual police stations has plummeted. The number of police officers on the beat has also gone down significantly. So they are dealing with a massive resource crisis. But at the same time, <laughs> when we do give them resources, what do they focus on? Well, they're rather keen on investigating people who silently pray outside or near abortion clinics. Um, they will arrest you if you tweet the wrong thing about transgenderism. Um, they use the 2003 Communications Act to prosecute and bully those who use so-called grossly offensive speech. They will use the Public Order Act to do the same. Um, WhatsApp jokes are now more liable for prosecution, I think, than bike theft and mobile phone theft. If you have your bike or your phone stolen in London, you might as well just pretend it never happened. You'll file it. I would I would file a report purely just to get insurance, right? To claim it back. Not because I have any hope that the police would would get it for me. And I think that sort of um quasi-lawless hopelessness that you and I might have felt at some point in London on a on a low level in terms of dealing with low-level violence or property theft which is appalling and drives people out, as it did for you, um, pales in comparison to the, the kind of level of utter hopelessness that would have afflicted these girls across the country, who must, be, who must have thought at the time, and, and in many cases I'm sure still do, think, you know, why was I, why was I so wrong to, be protect, to not be protected? Like, what have I done wrong to have been failed so severely? Like, what about my identity, about my person, about my life choices means that you really are ignoring me. I know that you know, the reason why kind of peers of mine in London are ignored is partially due to resources, partially because the police don't like confronting um, the bulk majority of people who commit, you know, theft and violent crime in London in some cases. 
but for them, I mean, it must be just like an unbearable realization that the police literally do not care about you at all. And in some cases were actively involved in supporting your abusers. Like one of the cases in the film I cover is about a girl who finally gathered the courage to speak to the police and was taken there by a researcher who'd been brought up to the town in Rotherham to investigate um, drug gangs. But actually she found these grooming gangs. And she, you know, in the period of her investigation, she worked with social workers and, and gained the trust of one girl who was at the core of a, a ring of abuse, a hor- like horrifyingly vast network of abuse. It took her months to gain the trust. And when she went to the police station, she got a message on her phone from her abuser saying, I know you're there. I know you're at the police station. So this man, this abuser, had already broken her brother's legs and told her that he had her 11-year-old sister, that I, I, I'm, I, you know, I have your sister with me right now. Basically threatening her that, you know, if you don't leave now, worse things will happen to you and your family. The most unbearable pressure for a young teenage girl to feel. So, shock, she left. She felt, she felt quite rightly that the police could not protect her. And, I, and nobody can ever blame her for making that decision because God only knows what would have happened if she stayed. How the abuser found out that she was in the police station has never, ever been explained. But we can draw some conclusions, Colin. We can use a bit of deductive assessment to work out the likely causes of that. Um, there's another man called PC Hassan Ali who was put under investigation in 2015 due to his you know, alleged links to the abusers. He was involved in the handover of the abused girl to the police that I mentioned earlier in this, uh, in this podcast. He was actually run over and killed on the day that it was announced that he was being investigated. Is that a coincidence? I think it's highly unlikely that it's not a coincidence. PC Hassan Ali probably knew a lot. He probably knew a lot of people who were involved in either actively covering this up or looking the other way. So he was, um, yeah, so possibly linked to the fact that he died on the day, the very same day that the announcement into his investigation was made. So, yeah, to say that, yeah, the police failed these girls and did not commit to the duty that they are sworn to under the crown is true as a, as a grave understatement. And I think we still see replications of that in other parts of the law, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's also a, a, a strange situation now that a lot of um, people who, that will have ties in the community or maybe, you know, kind of active parts of the community are now parts of the, um, the kind of the establishment as well. Like you said, you know, constables um, are part of the, the wider Pakistani community, um, people in local administration. Um, it's not necessarily, obviously, that, you know, people would uh, would side with, with tribal identities before the interests of society at large, but it seems to be the case that that has happened and um, it's not... Mm-hmm unexpected either. Oh, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's absolutely the case. I mean, um, one of the reasons why I think this scandal was allowed to go on for so long as it did is because there are there is a particular overrepresentation of clannish attitudes among some immigrant communities in Britain and um, Pakistani Brits in particular, where cousin marriage is very common. And so that creates a level of sociobiological kinship whereby there are links by blood 
to so many parts of the community that lives around you. Um, you know, cousin marriage is so common in some parts of Britain that it has led to crises within the health system whereby so many birth defects occur due to this problem. Um, this is considered by many to be sort of you know, unbearable, um, hateful uh, reality, but it's true and we should be able to you know, speak about this and we should also be dealing with it because first cousin marriage is not a good thing and it's very unhealthy, it is very dangerous. Um, so those clannish attitudes are generated by, in part by sociobiological kinship, but I think also by um, tools of extreme misogyny and threats of societal outcasting that exist within these communities. So the power imbalance between men and women in British Pakistani or Muslim communities in general is pretty severe, right? Uh, even in in many of these uh, communities who don't exist within the same uh, progress of the wider society, you don't catch on to the social mores and the moral values that are picked up by others, the customs that are picked up by others. And so lots of Pakistani girls were abused in Rotherham, but did not speak up for different reasons to the white victims. They didn't speak up because they feared that it would ruin their marriage prospects. Um, I can't find a single case of a man being prosecuted and convicted for these crimes, being punished, returning, you know, going to jail for like three or four years or whatever, like they get pathetic jail sentences, returning home and then being outcast. They almost always, I can't find a single case, I'm trying very hard to find one, they, they almost always return to their family. Um, they're not punished, they're not outcast because the, they, aren't, you know, they have so much extreme power in the household that their wives can't leave because they have no independence, they have no work, they're not allowed to work. There is no freedom for women to stand up against the male abuser in the house um, on a level which I think is even worse than it happens when it happens to like indigenous Brits or like you know white Britons or West, when Western European couples have an abusive husband or an abusive partner. There are, I think there is an added layer of of punishment there insofar as they don't have the means to escape by, by virtue of the fact they have nowhere to go. So that has meant that that lack of accountability within the community has been really severe, really severe. There are even stories of, you know, white mums going up to the wives of abusers and saying, your husband is abusing my daughter. Please do something because the police won't do anything. And the wives just like saying, I can't, I can't, can't do anything you know i i have i have just as little power as you in this situation and their experiences have been you know charted well i think by some other journalists and, and that's been good to see like the wives of the abusers being represented in this conversation but i didn't have time for it in my documentary but i think there's a really important part of the discussion and i'm very keen to make this in any follow-up discussion because i think that you know cuts to the heart of that of that particular reason for why they they were able to return to their families or their communities without punishment. Yeah, so you've, you've touched a little bit on the motivations of the abusers. I mean, you know, this kind of in, <clears throat> in very broad terms, uh, you know, misogyny, uh, essentially kind of a, a hate crime. But do you have any other insights about just a, it seems like extremely pervasive, like you said, you know, just a proportion of girls who were raped in Rotherham alone, which is a small town, uh, and the kind of the, the systematic way in which these networks worked and the fact that pretty much everyone participated, at least at, as, as an accomplice, it really makes you 
wonder very much about the the mental state because you know in kind of in a western context typically uh, you you think about okay sexual abuse as something you know a certain pathology especially on minors a certain pathology of you know of 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 a like subsection of of males who who have this i don't know paraphilia and this tendency to do this but here you know the the just the scale of it makes puts that whole theory into question and i wonder mm. if you've uh, if you found anything about this uh, this particular direction i'd say that what what is a common thread among most of these stories is uh the keenness to depict girls as deserving of the abuse. So um, the racial aspects cannot be ignored. Um, stories in, in, in Rotherham and Rochdale in particular described you know, white girls being passed around by groups of men in a ball, uh, like, like, t- like tossed around, and the men saying that, you know, degrading her as, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to repeat the language they use, but, you know, just like, heavily racialized terms to describe them in misogynistic ways. So there is um there is that element, which is also borne out in the in the punishment aspect. So when when one of the Rochdale gangs, about the only Rochdale gang that was taken to court, and the lead defendant in that trial said he objected to being tried by an all-white jury. So clearly the racial element, the ethnic element was like vital to understanding this crisis, both in the perpetrating of the crime and in the kind of reaction during the criminal justice process. Um, and then also, I just think, like, if you allow violent and stupid, um, simple men the freedom to access sex without punishment, and they have a precollection for um sexual violence and they get away with it once then i think the sort of the serotonin feedback loop kicks in that they can just keep doing this evil thing and they will get away with it and they will keep going and that will grow and grow and grow until you get some of the horrifying situations that we've seen Um, yes the first instance is horrifying but the massive instance of it is catastrophic um also i think in the 1970s, there was a conflict, Bangladeshi Liberation War and Independence War in Bangladesh. Pakistanis and Bangladeshis fought very heavily, where a rape was a common weapon, as common as the bullet. Hundreds of thousands of Bangladeshi women were raped during that conflict. And many, many of the men in that conflict um, you know, would have had rape as a cultural practice. I think that I think that shows a certain level of, you know preference to use rape as a tool of, of violence uh, at a kind of low level like it's, it's, it's a almost a reactive thing it doesn't take much to jump to that preference um i think that was way more common in that conflict than others in the 70s or in that period and that those many of those kind of cultures have been brought to britain um reflects that concern and the reason why i think um an extremely backward, misogynistic, violent culture has been able to flourish without being punished in Britain so much that it, it collided at the same time with a certain kind of open licentiousness within British culture, like lads, mags, um, hypersexualized culture. So you have like a, a hugely 
liberal or like uber progressive approach to sex among the white population that like completely it was weird it was like a, a weird shift in terms of hypersexualization from the 90s onwards um porn everywhere obviously um like the biggest newspaper in the country had topless women on the inside of the first page so um that culture of like oh it's okay to be wild and be free and, and express your sexuality colliding with an unspoken and unpunishable, visceral, violent, foreign male rage. Like, it's just like the perfect collision for crisis. And lo and behold, crisis occurred. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, just I remember kind of, you know, growing up in the 90s, even here, I mean, this is kind of an extension of the, the wider Anglosphere in a way. Um, the idea was that, you know, once you were kind of generically teenage, you would just be kind of, you know, let let loose on the world and, you know, hopefully you don't die and things like that. So it's, uh, it, it's you know, it was very much a change, a, a huge shift in, in, in the, the morals and, and just maybe just what was seen as possible in terms of, of actual guiding of your children um, kind of fell away. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, it was weird. I mean, Britain, Britain in the Northeast is an extremely confused place. It's when I was growing up as well. I mean... Um, you know, there was at once a hypersexualized culture, but also an extremely punitive tabloid energy about um, like aggressively criticizing girls who engage in it. So there was a huge like teenage pregnancy scare at the same time as we were promoting a culture of promiscuity and a low openness and like a high openness and like easy access to sex. It's like they don't work together. <laughs> these two, these two trends don't uh, should not exist side by side. And so, really, really punitive and almost like hyper conservative punishment of girls who engage in the culture that the same media promotes. <laughs> so um, that that level of uh, promotion of sexuality and punishment of these girls is another you know way in which they were ignored and treated as like making their own choices by so many of these police forces and local politicians at the time. And, you know, I think we're starting to see a reaction against many of those things. I mean, you yourself have spoken regularly about kind of the, the sex negative movement. You've had guests like that on your, on your show. Um, you know, do I think the same thing would happen today on, on the same scale? I'm really not so sure. I think we have a, a, a very suddenly very shifting attitude towards sexual culture and sexuality, especially with the Me Too movement and, and all that has brought with it. But we do know that this is still going on. You know, part of my investigation was establishing that so many girls are still being fobbed off by the police while they're being abused. So many police forces are still not recording ethnicity. Um, the National Crime Agency, which is like Britain's FBI, was brought into Rotherham to keep investigating the issue after 2015 because South Yorkshire police clearly could not be trusted. They have found another 110 victims and they've made dozens of more prosecutions and they've notified and they found you know, loads more, um, loads more perpetrators. So this is still an issue. Many of the perpetrators have gotten away with it. And yeah, it, it won't change until the conversation I'm the national conversation I'm trying to restart happens properly and, and fully. Um, I think I've been successful in starting some reinvigorated conversation but you know i want more yes and and rightly so because I, I think we can only intuit how many cases there are that haven't i mean this is a a um 
just famously hard to speak about type of crime, especially in the context of grooming, because essentially you the grooming aspect is kind of the securing of some form of even light cooperation, at least in the beginning, we're using all these essentially sales tactics to to brainwash children to to kind of go along with the incremental scale of abuse that you're subjecting them to up until the point where they don't really know what's happening. And then add to that the layer of uh, the threats against family, the fact that these this happens in small communities. Obviously, these people are aware of of the family ties of the girls. And, um, and you mentioned in, in one of your pieces as well that there's kind of a, a strange kind of added layer of technology where these girls are stalked on Snapchat, and you know they they're being sent pictures of their families and 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 very targeted threats against them. So it, it, it's probably very very hard to actually estimate the scale of this, but just knowing the the numbers that are already out there and, you know, the proportion of pretty much all girls in, in, in Rotherham is, is in the, the number of people abused is just absolutely horrendous. So, I mean, yeah, this rabbit hole inevitably has to go much deeper. Yeah. I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm staying on the story. I've, I've produced a, a year long investigation in a film, but, um, you know, some others will pick up on it and there are already, you know, many journalists who are interested in this story, but I, I'm certainly not going to drop it myself. I'm very keen to keep investigating. In fact, one of my future projects will be, I think, a, a documentary dedicated entirely to the situation in, in, in Oldham, a town in, in Lancashire, also in Greater Manchester, which um, which needs its own standalone investigation because the, the many characters and issues at play there are fascinating. But, um, yeah, I, I mean... You know, with regret, I expect more stories to develop in this space and I will continue to pursue them. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, in, invaluable work. And I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm more in the, the, the beautiful country that the, the UK is. You know, I've, I've uh, immigrated to the UK at one point because I was just, you know, attracted by the infinity of, of culture pouring out of this, you know, obvious cradle of civilization and mm. the, you know, we might complain on the show about, you know, the, the fallout of, of uh, Anglo civilizational decline, but the fact that there even, even is a civilization at the core of this is, is all, you know, the, the result of, of what the British people and, uh, you know, everyone, everyone who's, who's worked there um, has developed. And it just, it's really, I feel deep sadness for, for what's going on in the UK. And I really do hope that people, um, you know, the uh, indigenous population of Britain has a certain wake up moment about a lot of these things because there is a certain, you know, um, kind of go along to get along vibe in, in, in the UK. You know, the the wrongful implementation of the stiff upper lip, I think, you know, it shouldn't be so stiff at the moment. It should mm. be a little bit, um, <laughs> you know, focused on on the things that are really going wrong because these things escalate and, um, you know, they, they, they snowball up to a point where it's going to be very hard to, to move. I mean, obviously Brexit was a, a, a sort of popular revolt, but you see how even Brexit itself has been kind of turned, uh, torn and twisted and, and turned into something else. And um, it, it hasn't really yielded the actual results that people were looking for. But um, I wonder if you feel that, you know, there there are other revolts bubbling under the surface because this has to be part of one. I would say that your 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 commentary briefly on the on the British and in particular the English national psyche is very 
yeah, very lucent, very, very, very true. Um, the stiff upper lip energy, I think, is underrated. We need more of it, but unfortunately, it's applied in a sort of like mawkish and sentimental way when dealing with crises. The best example of this that I use regularly is the 2017 Manchester Arena bombing, the Ariana Grande concert, where Salman Abedi, a, a Libyan so-called asylum seeker, um, carried out a, a suicide bombing at this concert. Killed dozens of children. Um, the national reaction and the national conversation that followed that event was ghoulish. It made me extremely distressed for the future of my country. And the overarching theme of that was an Oasis song, Don't Look Back in Anger. Oasis, obviously, huge band from Manchester, the biggest band from England, I'd say, since the Beatles, right? And uh, Don't Look Back in Anger being used as the commentary after dozens of children were pulling the flesh of their friends out of their ears and their hair, after their like limbs were ripped from them and they were massacred by a man who should not have been in the country, a man who was rescued by the Royal Navy, brought to England, given a home, given everything that the riches and bounty of Britain can offer. And his response and his his way of repaying that kindness and that foolish, naive generosity was to kill our children. Don't look back in anger. Goodness me, I mean, I was looking back in all sorts of rage. And it distressed me enormously to realise that the prevailing sentiment was don't look back in anger. And I keep thinking about that instance when I think about this story as well. The prioritisation of social cohesion among disparate and indeed often conf actively confrontational groups that cannot really exist successfully side by side, um, trying to generate a sort of fake homogeneity through values that don't really mean anything. Uh, since the, uh, the Blairite moment in the late 90s, British values have come to mean these kind of like wishy-washy, woolly, fake concepts like tolerance, uh, diversity, Values that actually don't mean anything in terms of Britishness. These are just universal concepts of, of liberalism and, pro and progressivism. But if you ask the average Briton, you know, what, do you what, what are British values? They will say tolerance and diversity because that is what's been drummed into their heads for the best part of three decades. And so when these horrifying events happen, the first you know, alarm bell that goes off in their heads is, well, let's be tolerant and let's pursue the protection of diversity. No, <laughs> let's absolutely not be tolerant and pursue the protection of diversity. If it leads to these kind of scenarios, we should ask ourselves, you know, what are the political policy and societal levers that have been pulled that have led to these kind of catastrophes occurring? Because there are so many and you won't fix them if you don't look back in anger. And if you don't look back with your brain, clearly a huge degree of analysis is required. Some tough thinking is needed. But the um, you know, the population that would revolt is kind of diminished through very successful, very aggressive communications and political campaigns that seek to sort of like numb, numb their urges of anger. Um, and I think this is very successfully coordinated by you know, government and media and the popular consciousness and the culture. It all whips up into generating this sort of massive amnesia and this um, almost kind of like general anaesthetic for rage that should bubble up among people who feel as though their country is being torn to shreds by those who don't care for it. So do I think there'll be a reaction there? 
obviously a lot of me hopes there is like a lot needs to change to generate that and i suppose uh i'm quite unique um in like not shying away from admitting that i am a campaigning journalist and that like i produce investigations and films and reports with outcomes in mind i, I want things to change right um you know it's not everyone's style but you know i i, I generate work because i want to I want things to change, right? I'm looking into stories that are under discussed and issues that need urgent action because I want discussion and urgent action. So yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope so too. And I feel like um, you know, the production of, of stories uh like yours and uh and a, a lot of the other things that are happening now on GB News, which I think is a quite an, an interesting kind of breath of fresh air it does have certain aspects of kind of more uh, fox newsy you know um sky newsy type uh type production uh, but it there there is quite a lot of stuff on gb news that is pretty much unprecedented in the uk um because you know while i was in i was there i was essentially reliant on you know, murky, strange alternative media. I mean, nothing that was produced by the main—I mean, mainstream kind of like network type sure. uh, television had any sort of. It, it was absolutely pure propaganda for mm-hmm. for progressivism, and um, yeah, you you'd have to go. I don't know on YouTube or, or other places, Odyssey, to find anything that was was remotely tied to reality. So I think that's a good um, a good change. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what do you make of the of the of the GB News Revolution? Do you see any um, uh, any traction, any kind of scale that that this type of media is getting? Well, I mean, they employ me, so of course I'm enormously positive about them. Uh, <laughs> um, well, look, uh, GB News is the first entry into the live television market for over thirty years, right, in Britain. Um, so I think that very clearly depicts the. The issue that you're describing, the fact that um, there is a sort of blobby similarity among the mainstream media outlets that all kind of carry similar analysis and similar coverage. And I think, you know, an enormous chunk of the population feel undersupplied in terms of the issues that they care about. And it's my motivation, and I think the channel's wider motivation, is to create content that appeals to the largest portion of the population that feels as though the issues they care about aren't being discussed elsewhere. Um, so the issues that I think are really relevant in that space are crime, uh, immigration, uh, security, um, huge social trends. I think these are areas where you find like a massive gap between analysis and proper investigation played by other mainstream outlets and what people actually want to learn about, want to hear about. Yeah, I mean, uh, mainstream outlets do touch on kind of these third rail uh subjects but it's only you know if you have something like i don't know question time and you have one person who's you know among five progressives uh, who's the like designated um scapegoat for whatever you know and then they they extract different clips from the from the conversation and um essentially kind of don't let the person speak up and there's there's also i mean if if you you know you can have a, a multifaceted conversation if there's one guy who's the fall guy for whatever <laughs> subject you get. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a charade. It's- well, the, the, the way to get around that, I think this is an area where like uh, the conservative side or the right in general in Britain and to some extent Europe has 
has struggled more broadly is that we are relying on taking over institutions that already exist to get our message across and we're not building our own institutions. Um, or like new media platforms that promote um, commentary and coverage of issues that matter. That's how you win, right? Not by just trying to get a new commentator at the BBC who might share some opinions with other people because you'll be overwhelmed by the prevailing liberal wind that exists elsewhere. You need to create your own institutions. You need to build your own you know, standards, your own places to... Yeah, I think that's... That's the that's the ticket, and I know people who you know are currently uh, promoting books and you know trying to get uh, obviously their their numbers up in terms of book sales. Who will mm-hmm. who refuse to go on on even on the you know the largest platform mainstream television because they know that they will be treated potentially in a in a in a way that's you know kind of abusive to their message or you know they're 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 set up to be the fall guy so. Um, yeah, I think that's a very um, good thing because obviously this means that they have alternatives. You know, they still want to promote their books. They want to have sales and now they can maybe promote them on GB News or some some other place that has scale, um, a lot of alternative media, not even like broadcast t- television, just like, you know, different podcasts, different mm-hmm. uh, magazines now. You know, there's I Am uh, 7076 coming out of the UK as sure. well. I mean, there's sure. lots of little, you know, little to medium sized things as well which which build up and and have have um uh, energy of their own so yeah i think this is very positive and you know it might not be extremely visible you know as visible as the bbc or npr or things like that uh and doesn't have that you know legacy air about it but it's quite effective if you look at the the scale of it at this point i remember um tucker carlson i remember listening to something he said about maybe like three or four years ago, he said, you know, if I was a 22-year-old, fresh out of college graduate in the US, what would I do today? And I think he said something like, I would start a podcast. Or like, I'd just move to the <laughs> rural New England and start Genius. <laughs> yeah, which is, okay. <laughs> which is kind of what he's done anyway recently. But like, um, yeah, uh, trying to latch onto the organizations that already exist. It's, it's, I think it's a, a project that's doomed to failure. So create yeah. your own. I'm, I don't want to repeat myself, but you know what I mean? Create your own. I, I, if I, I'm happy to repeat myself, someone listening to this, hears the message and suddenly gets very uh, agitated and, and, and has an urge to generate their own uh, platform. Um, but yes, build our own institutions, people. Yeah, I think that's a, a good uh, kind of impetus to, to, to end this on. But not before I ask you the, the last question, the question that everyone gets. Um, about a thinker, yeah. this could be any sort of thinker, um, who has been influential in, in your in your view of the world and um, that you think people should read more of or know about or yeah, just uh, be, be familiar with. I pick two, is that all right? Sure, please. All right, great. Well, so uh, in terms of reading, uh, I think the writer and philosopher Nina Power is fantastic. And she wrote a book last year called uh, What Do Men Want, which uh, I read and loved. And I, I spoke with her about. And, you know, you, I think your question is about them being underrated. I think that book is hugely underrated. And I think it's very almost frustrating that she wrote the book just before the rise of Andrew Tate, right? And uh, these sudden conversations about toxic, toxic masculinity, so-called toxic masculinity, oh my God, kind of like uh, pushing themselves to the front of the like, international consciousness and, and the culture. Uh, but so many answers to um, questions posed by that discussion are found in that book and her wider work, which I recommend widely to all. Um, I use it almost as kind of a regular, I'm, I'm recommending that book more than I am any other at the moment because of this kind of Tate-related chat. 
um, you know, why might young men be agitating towards him? Hey, it's a whole conversation for another time, but right, uh, Nina, within Nina Power's work, you will find some answers. Um, and then, uh, kind of slightly off the beaten track, I suppose, a very separate uh, a musician, a, a music producer I listen to almost every day called A.G. Cook. Um, there was a sadly now past uh, writer, philosopher, um, all-round very interesting man called Mark Fisher, uh, who used to have a blog, a music blog called K-Punk, which I read a bit towards the end of his life when I was still quite young. Um, and he wrote a lot about uh, so-called hauntology, this um, this uh, sensation derived from uh, French philosopher Jacques Derrida about the idea that you're haunted by possible futures that you can't achieve because capitalism and the inevitability of capitalism means that you can't imagine an alternative. Capitalism is so ingrained in our culture, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure I believe with the, the wider philosophy he puts in, but he makes an argument which I think is totally convincing, which is that this drive of there's only one vision for life and only one vision for culture um, prevents the arrival of new ideas and new thinking and crucially new music and so at the time he was writing Amy Winehouse was huge she sounded like the 1950s um, bands like the Arctic, Arctic Monkeys were huge they literally sounded like the 1980s in fact he says that when he first listened to I bet that you look good on the dance floor by the Arctic Monkeys he thought it was from 1984 and so we we revive zombie forms of music in his words and we don't create anything new and the reason why i like ag cook is because he makes music that sounds the way you feel and that he is making music for 2023 not not repackaging funk like mark ronson and bruno mars <laughs> not giving me not giving me 70s disco in 2022 hd headphones I get new new music that sounds like the age I live in with A.G. Cook. And so listen to him. I know that's, that's an excellent recommendation. I was, just, I was just thinking about Mark Ronson just a second before you mentioned him. I was like, yeah, just like Mark I don't Ronson. Like, I don't like Mark Ronson very much. I think you can tell he makes me very upset. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that was that was a tone of for almost an entire decade. I mean, he's definitely influential. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, just like reviving and, you know defibrillating all sorts of music from from every age i mean he's very much a, a remixer he's not he's not moved the culture forward one step and his music has tens of billions of plays so, yeah there's a, i don't know where i've heard this but i think it's, a, it's an interesting observation that you know if you see a picture from the 1970s you can pretty much through the clothing and and how people carry themselves know okay mm -hmm. this is from about 1970 same with the 50s nowadays it's very murky. Uh, I mean, I guess you could tell by the by the the quality of the of the HD, <laughs> but uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty hard just because we are in this kind of remix age, and you know, I mean, most Zoomers look like they're from from the nineties now. Yeah. You know, there's flared pants again, pretty much seventies as well. I mean, it would yeah. really much depends which street corner you take a picture of, but it doesn't really. And a lot of essentially the hardware that we use, you know, from cars to uh, to just like the basic technologies of living has not changed much. I mean, maybe you could date people through like the actual, you know, the, the generation of phone they're holding in their hands. But if they, they might, you know, put it down to take the picture, uh, it's going to be very hard. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm happy that you've recommended someone who maybe bucks this trend because it seems so uh, all consuming. Yeah, I, I seek it out in all 
all like culture I consume. I seek anyone who pushes the culture forward. I don't want to see people wearing low rise jeans like they're bringing back Y2K <laughs> anymore. I want to see. Yeah, me neither. New. I'm I'm too old for a low rise. Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah. East London has changed a little bit since your time. I think it's uh, it's 2001 again. It's not, oh, good. Yeah. It's not good. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's um, you know, that's in a way interesting to hear. I'm actually going to visit East London. I probably I don't know if, if East London, but London, and in, in a few months, I've just been invited to speak at NatCon. So, okay. um, yeah, I'll I'll be there again. Six months pregnant, <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, that's um, yeah. That's a, that's a great recommendation. Thank you so much for 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 coming on. And um, do you have any um, direction that you want to point people into? I mean, obviously the documentary. I'll link that in the show notes. But any other of your work or or links? Oh, oh just message me on Twitter. I, I I pretty much respond to every DM as long as they're not insane. So uh, I can I can point you towards all the interesting work they might be um, uh, wanting to chase after that. But I work full time for GB News. If uh, that's where my work is now, I used to write for the Mail spectator critic still write for the critic sometimes but uh i'm a i'm a broadcaster now and if they want to catch up i'm charlie peters on twitter and they will see everything there excellent excellent i'll link that in the show notes so thank you so much charlie for for coming on and for all the work you do i mean more power to you and yeah hopefully we'll hear more and maybe more uplifting things from your directors too, though I don't expect it. Uh, but yeah, more uplifting in their effect rather than necessarily the message that you're conveying. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Keep the faith. Cheers. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.